welcome everyone to our special New Year's Eve edition of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Flushy. Right, so we're at this point again where we have a chance to reflect on the highlights, the lowlights, and everything that happened in 2018. I can't believe we're at the end of the year already. I know. I remember recording this same episode here last year. Well, I needed you to remind me what my word of last year was because I completely forgot. So on that topic, so how did you go on your word from last year? So remind Um, everyone what it was. Yeah, so my word for last year was resilience building. Mm. And that was basically symptomatic of the fact that I'd been through a lot of change in 2017. I'd changed jobs and I'd moved cities. And, yeah, there was a lot of upheaval. And so a lot of the year was just about um, being able to cope with all that change as it was happening. I feel like one of our friends, um, Annika, described it really well, that last year was the year of burning everything down. Because <laughs> it was. It's kind of like a forest fire. You know, you burn it all down. Mm. And then hopefully this year has been a year of growth for mm. you, new, mm. fresh growth. Mm. Well, if I had to describe this year, mm. again, when I was reflecting on both my personal and professional experiences, I came to the realisation that I'd, again, undergone a significant amount of change. Um, But this year had manifested itself somewhat differently. Mm. So I did change jobs again, and that was a significant change. Um, But I also bought my own place. Oh, my God. So exciting. I I forgot that that happened this year. I know. I know. I remember this time last year we were in the depths of attending, like, soul-crushing inspections and auctions and thinking that I would never, ever find a place I could actually buy and be happy with. So to actually have that place um, and be right around the corner from you guys. I know. And the (laughs) thing about you and, like, some of our listeners may not know, but, like, you're not, like, the typical mum and dad just kicked me in a casual, you know, 100K for a deposit. You've been saving since you were 15. Yeah. It's been a long time in the works, so. Like, this is a monumental goal, like, achievement unlocked, I think. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, no, you're right. I think um, coming from a family where money was really hard to come by Mm. makes me all the more appreciative of the fact that I have been able to get to that point where I do have a place I can call home. Um, And then on top of that, um, I underwent a lot of health stuff this year that most people would be aware of. Um, But the reason why I say that the year's been transformative is because even though some of the experiences I've gone through have been negative and some have been positive, um, I think the end result is that I have sort of transformed for the better and I do have a better sense of who I am and where I am and what I'm doing. Mm. And that's really exciting. That definitely seems to me to be a sign of progress. I still have my, you know, stumbles every now and then like everyone does. Mm. Um, But I think the overall trend is a positive one. I think that's what's really exciting, seeing, like, your growth from this time last year to now. Like, it actually, you can map it out to see, like, how much you've grown in your personal life, but also in your professional life. And, like, it really has been a transformative year, actually. Yeah. Like, now, now, like, my reflection. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, I I totally forgot you even went through the house stuff, like. I think it's because it was so traumatic (laughs) that you had to put it to one side. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Um, it was so crushing. But what about you? How would you – well, first of all, how did you describe last year? So last year my word was lucky and I talked about sort of my – the the luck that I had with my support network, my friends and family as I was going through my own health struggles last year. And I think similarly to you, it was also a year of really burning things down to the ground Mm. so that you can rebuild it up again. And so I think after having such a transformative last year, this year, like just before we started recording, I was saying um, it feels almost like a really boring year, Mm -hmm. a year of like, I wouldn't use the word stagnation, but compared to what happened last year and, like, you know, that, um, this year probably consolidation is probably a good way of describing this year as in consolidating um, professionally and, I guess, personally as well. Like, I, yeah, I can't say that too much has happened in terms of my year this year. Like, there hasn't been many life-changing events, but maybe that's what I needed to have. Exactly. I think... After the year you had last year, 
that you did need that time to sort of reinvest in yourself and kind of just have that stability. Yeah. And I think before we, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a very ill-fated, um, uh, we were trying to attempt at pod- podcasting late <laughs> yeah. in the night. And we were talking about measuring progress and how difficult mm. it actually is to measure progress, like where we've gone with sort of our mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. And so I think like for you, has there been some sort of measurable progress? Like how do you sort of... I honestly still take each day as it comes mm-hmm. um, because to be frank, even though on the whole the trend has been positive, there have definitely been some significant dips along the way. Mm. Um, so I have made some concrete changes in my life. So, uh, for example, the change in job has now meant that I've got more time to... Um, exercise, for example, and make sure that I actually eat three concrete meals a day and just doing those little things that kind of actually add up to make a big difference. So what you're saying is your new job has now enabled you to actually live life like a human being (laughs) rather than like a robot. I really enjoyed my last job. No, I know you did. I think with especially all my health stuff this year, Mm. that it was really about just putting myself first and not feeling any shame in doing that. And so that has meant really going back to basics Mm. and, yeah, looking after myself so that I am in a position where I can look after other people as well. And just as a side note, I think, and we've gone on about this a number of times, but the legal profession really needs to have a real good look at itself Mm. in terms of the way that it manages practitioners' mental health and well-being. Um, I had a friend recently tell me that following the um, Royal Commission into banks and whatever, finance, that um, three lawyers from the top-tier law firms had died from things like heart attacks and stress-related illnesses. And um, there's currently a work-safe investigation and and a provisional improvement notice that's been placed on one of the top-tier law firms, which is quite um, in light of this um, mm-hmm. Royal Commission and obviously there was a whistleblower who mm-hmm. notified that there were things like grads sleeping under their desks at night and mm-hmm. ridiculous time frames um, that they were trying to meet because of the commission's time frames. Um, the ultimate irony of maybe they could have a Royal Commission into the Royal Commission. But... Well, they've got a Royal Commission into mental health. I know, but isn't that kind of ironic that, you know, you had a Royal Commission, the timelines were so crazy Mm. that people were driven, Mm. like, were deprived of basic, like, things such as sleep Mm -hmm. and food and that type of thing. I just, you know, it's that culture that I think we need to look into and a huge part of that is time-based billing. But even for us, like, you never worked in a time-based No, but just the sector. subject matter of what I worked with. But the volume as well. And the volume, absolutely. And, like, resourcing constraints. Mm. Like, it's obvious that, you know, in an NGO-type environment, there may not be resources available. But um, And ultimately, like, we're not paid high enough to think about those things. Mm. But you have to look at, when you're looking at high levels of turnover, mental health, and death, obviously, in some of these cases, and, like, one of our friends, like um their senior principal practitioner he had a heart attack he died for 17 minutes like look at that um and like you're on notice I guess it's kind of almost negligent if you don't take steps to um like reasonable steps to promote your staff's well-being and there's an OHS risk as well so yeah I don't know I think yeah that's a super side note but like (laughs) I just think it's it's really strange to hear that some people don't get to eat properly and don't get to sleep properly yeah and it's not sustainable you know I think um it's definitely a case of some of those pressures being self-inflicted but often that self-infliction comes from a place of working in a system that actually compels you to deny yourself those basic necessities so that you can actually do the work and do it well and the thing is like when they people hire people like you they know that you're going to put in the extra yards like they know you're going to do it anyway Mm -hmm. and it's a type a personality thing but I think 
the growth for you and like for me is that realizing I'm not going to sacrifice myself for a job like that sounds really selfish especially when you're working in criminal justice or you're working in areas of law where it actually makes a difference Mm. but um you can't make a difference to anyone's life if you're not well exactly I think it's really short-sighted to think oh I need to stay up all night to prepare this plea or this bail application if it means that you're actually going to incur significant costs in terms of your health because yeah long term that's going to mean that you won't be able to work as long as you would. Mm. And so think about all the people you could be helping down the track that you can't because you just sacrificed yourself for your work. I know, and that I think that was one of my key learnings, and I'm glad that I think you've come around to it this mm. year. And you've been hospitalised. Like, it hasn't been um, – it's not little health issues. No. It's quite significant health no. issues. And it's stuff that requires follow-up and, you know, it's going to take a while to actually figure out what exactly the long-term repercussions are of that. So well, I'm it's so a big wake-up call. Yeah. I'm so glad you're putting that first because it means – you can you're you're preventing it from becoming a chronic issue, mm. which um, is eventually not going to do any of your clients any good. So I'm so pleased that like that is now front and center, and and that has factored into your professional stuff too. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's only been it's only going to go on the up and up. Um, question on without notice, mm-hmm. but thinking ahead to next year in terms of goals. You know how everyone does New Year's resolutions? Oh, yeah. Um, some people do. Perhaps we can think of a, a word to maybe target for next year. So if last year was resilience building, this year for you was transformative. Transformative. What's next year's? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is a question without notice. Um, I really don't know. I can edit the silence. <laughs> Thanks. Take some of the pressure off. Um, I actually co-opted one of our mutual friends' ideas to create a vision board the other day. And I had all these different categories and goals under the different categories I had listed. So I had one section that was devoted to travel, Mm. one to relationships, one to work, one to creativity. And I found that the largest number of goals actually came under the creativity banner. Yeah, I think you were talking about this the other day. Yeah, which so kind of surprised you mean by me. That? Well, because, you know, I've, like you, mm. I am a type A personality mm. and I am inclined to put my work first. But I think after having the issues I've had this year with my health that I've actually come to realise that if I do want to invest in my health properly, then I need to indulge in those sides of myself that... I think I've just been neglecting for so long because I have been so singular in my focus. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I used to love music. Mm. I um, used to be part of the school choir, both in primary school and in high school, and I used to audition for all the solo parts in different uh, plays and musicals, and I used to love playing the guitar and the flute, and I just kind of put, yeah, all this stuff that, yeah, Did obviously you're a bit know. surprised. Um, but, yeah, like that was stuff that I took a lot of sort of joy out of and that I kind of just put by the wayside when work got too much or study Studying, got too much. Yeah. Um, so one of my goals this year was to get back into the music, um, to learn language as well. You mm. know, I learnt French, Italian and Japanese back at school and I loved all three. I did Indonesian university and I loved it. But again, to make time for other study and work, it just kind of fell by the wayside. It's so sad that um, I was thinking about, you know, top tier law firms when they're recruiting people, they want the most well-rounded employee possible. Someone who's like representing Australia in the, you know, international cricket, but also speaks like 50 languages and plays like high level cello or something like that. (laughs) But once you start working, like the demands of work, you know, simply it your creative outlets fall by the wayside. Yeah. And I think that's why we decided to start this podcast in the first place mm-hmm. because it's one means of us channeling our creative um, energy, I suppose. Absolutely. And you're right. It's such a contradiction on the one hand for top-tier firms to put out the message that you need to be a well-rounded person with varied interests to be the most employable. And but on the other hand, when we do employ you, we're going to put you in such an environment that you're going to be stripped of all those qualities that made you an attractive employee in the first place. 
seems like everyone's missing out in that situation. I know, but maybe that's a part of, and I, and you know, it may not be something you can is safe, I guess, to do in um, all workplaces. But one of my friends was saying that one of the grads in her year, he's just this like white dude, like really entitled, and she he works under her, and she's like slaving her ass off, mm-hmm. working like fourteen hour days and stuff like that. But he checks out at five thirty, like every like particular days because he's like, no, nah, I've got football training. Mm. I'm going to do football training. And, um, you know, your first impression is kind of like, what a dick, um, leaving all this work for her to do. But a part of me kind of admires that, like, ability to just say, like, no. Nah. Yeah. I think, I don't know if this is the same rationale for other women, but I think um, I'm guilty of working in that way. And I think maybe part of the reason comes from the fact that deep down I still don't feel like I deserve where I am. So, you know, I can look, for example, at my resume and I can see that I've worked in all these really challenging environments. It's imposter syndrome. Yeah, exactly. But all those sort of external markers of validation Mm. don't resonate with how I feel emotionally. I don't feel like the person that's on that piece of paper. Mm. So in order to compensate for it, I feel like if I work doubly as hard as my male, you know, counterpart, that maybe I'll then get to that level as well and maybe then I'll earn the right to actually invest in myself. This is this is kind of segueing into something I wanted to, like, squeeze into this segment, mm-hmm. which was my key learning of the year about the merit myth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, um, and what you're saying is really interesting because, Unfortunately, a lot of the guys, like the guy I just told you before, will progress pretty high. Like my colleague, um, my friend was saying that he apparently has the the right connections. Like he's Mm. really buddy with the partners. He plays golf with them. He does this and that. So despite the fact that she's often staying back late at night correcting his work and the fact that she's the one that's staying there late, it's likely that he'll get promoted before she does because of his visibility. Yeah. And so I think my learning of this year in terms of like um, politics um, in particular, because that's the most visible form, has really been the merit myth. And mm-hmm. I think nothing illustrates it as best as um, Julie Bishop. <laughs> um, I totally forgot we had a leadership skill. <laughs> like I've lost track. It's Australia. We keep swapping over every couple of weeks. Yeah. That was such a fucking debacle. But if the one thing that you could take out of that was the transformation of Julie Bishop's like Mm -hmm. views towards like merit and like feminism and that type of thing. And now I'm really confused about where she stands because she's spent the whole time that she's been in the liberal party very much like, well, you know, we don't need like quotas are patronizing. Mm -hmm. Women should be promoted on merit um, and that, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, she's a bit ambivalent when it comes to, like, like feminism and that type of thing, Fem- like, an identity politics, like, I think it's a, quite a liberal mm. uh, attitude to take. This year, when it was very obvious that she was the right woman for the job, given that, well, she was the deputy prime minister, wasn't she? She had been deputy to Tony Abbott, yeah, to right. Malcolm Turnbull, and... Was it just those two? I feel like she's been playing second fiddle for so long. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Exactly. And here you had her up against Peter Dutton. I mean... Questionable merit. Yeah, just a tad. Who the hell is ScoMo? Like, (laughs) I don't even know who this Prime Minister is. What is he? He's the Prime Minister by default. But that just goes to show that that lean-in approach that some women take in order to make it to the top can only take you so far. And there was nothing like the kick in the balls when um, those secret um, WhatsApp messages were released, Mm. like between, like, Chris Pine and stuff like that, and they were saying, oh, you should put, like, Julie, um, like, last or something like that. Some weird, stupid power play that was going on behind the scenes, behind her back, Mm. like... Fuck, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be her, someone who's given her whole life mm-hmm. to her career, mm-hmm. to be stabbed in the back this way. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want a good example of where merit does not necessarily <laughs> equate to getting anywhere, it's Australian politics. Mm. 
and this has become so highlighted like when I'm going to go through my extensive like political lowlights list of this <laughs> year and there were many we actually really did struggle to think struggle of some highlights. highlights yeah like you've got like David Lionhelm and you've got um Andrew Broad the guy oh of the g'day mate <laughs> sexting scandal <laughs> And then you've got Barnaby Joyce, Mr. Throw his wife and kid, um, throw his partner and newborn kid under the bus, Barnaby Joyce. Um, there seems to be a common theme emerging here with white male privileged men in positions of real authority. But they're and so power. mediocre. Like they don't have to do anything. They don't it's not like you who before you were just saying you have to stay back late to prove a point and to show that, you know, you're the most conscientious worker in the room. Like some of these guys. It's different for men though, especially of that variety, because they've been taught from birth that they are entitled to being in those positions mm. women don't which is so depressing and that's why we operate so differently so um yeah so like with the barnaby joyce thing for example i mean here you had i know he's just a backbencher now but he, he was, was our deputy prime minister exactly our to ic who you know, was the face of a party that espouses itself as being family values. very, yeah, all about family values. And he's married for some, I think it was like 24 years uh, to his wife. And his had, wife is so, how many so children? dignified. They had like four daughters. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, leader of a party that's espousing family values and then really anti-gay marriage. Yes. And I think that's the difference here, right? Because I was reflecting on everything that had happened and I was thinking, well, is it fair that we can just kind of, you know, pry into someone's personal life, even if they are a public figure? Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. Totally. But you put yourself out there. Exactly. I feel like he's the one who basically made sure that the private stuff crossed into the public stuff. Because mm. by saying, hey, I am opposed to same-sex marriage on the basis that it'll ruin the sanctity of marriage, whilst at the same time cheating on your wife of 24 years with a young female staffer mm. is kind of, you know, opening yourself up to being critiqued if you're found to be a hypocrite. I know, but I do feel for his wife and kids that were unwittingly dragged into mm. his mess. Like, can you imagine if your dad had an oh. affair with his staffer, got her pregnant, and it's like the most worst-kept secret in Canberra? I... I still feel for them. Like, it's, yeah, it would be the worst thing ever. And then for them to actually, like, amplify the whole thing by doing that um, tell-all interview oh, with Channel 7, 7 where they pocketed, oh. like, $150,000. It was... That was humiliating. Yeah. Like, oh. It just brought out, I think, the worst in Australian politics. It was sad. It was seedy. Totally. It was about, you know, a man exerting his dominance over the women in his lives it was just terrible and definitely example of like a mediocre white guy getting pretty far ahead i guess talk of him actually potentially reclaiming the leadership after all of that so yeah just goes to prove that point it goes to prove the point that you can stuff up as much as you can like him like and to take another example i know we're we're kind of skipping into the low lights. There's so many. Like, yeah. So right, we'll end on a high. We will end on a high. But to take a good example is Peter Dutton. Like, mm. he really destabilised the government for no reason other than his own political gain. Mm-hmm. And I don't get what the point of that was. He already has his own home affairs, super ministry. Like, why but do But you... when you can become the prime minister. But uh... if you're shit, no one wants you. <laughs> well, he obviously doesn't think he's shit. And to be frank, the external markers of success reinforce that. He's the minister of one of the most powerful departments in the country. But he didn't win. He stirred it. Didn't he do it twice? Like, he stirred it once, got rejected, stirred it the second time, got rejected, ScoMo took the lead somehow. Like I think that's a common experience of people who do end up going for the prime ministership, though. But how did he not get fired? Well, he obviously holds a lot of sway. (sighs) Ugh. So he didn't get penalised at all. He wasted all of our money, like all the all the sitting days that was devoted to this mm. when they really should have been passing some legislation through. Like I feel like nothing happened in 
in Australian politics this year because we're too busy dealing with all the personal scandals that were happening every second day. Mm -hmm. So, to take it to our next topic, um, so what were the, your lowlights for this year? Um, well, I started off with the Barnaby Joyce thing. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it ticked off all the sad. Like, it was just sad. It was seedy. It was salacious. And <laughs> as soon as you thought you hit rock bottom you found out that, no, there was more. Because, you know, it started with the whole narrative, yep, he's got this young female staffer pregnant. Yes, we're going to now conduct an investigation into whether or not he misused um, travel, um, I think it's travel allowance for her. Then the bonk ban. Then the bonk ban, oh, my God. That was so stupid. Um, You know, sort of trying to um, regulate who ministers can and can't sleep with. Obviously, it didn't extend to Andrew Broad (laughs) six months later. Andrew Broad, who was also admonishing Barnaby Joyce at the time. Um, Irony. Irony. (laughs) Um, And then I think it all culminated or came to a head when there was that woman who made that allegation of sexual harassment against Barnaby Joyce. Wow, I and, forgot about that. Yeah, because there's so much, right? And that was the point at which he said, okay, I'm actually going to relieve myself of the leadership. But it was that that took it. it yeah, took nothing to do with the, the affair. And not just the affair, the fact that he cast aspersions on the paternity of the child. Then he filmed the seven, the Sunday night report mm. on, on Seven talking about the troubles that his child caused. Oh, that was such a train wreck interview. Do you remember we had like a bit of a we were, I had a viewing party? <laughs> yeah, we did. It was just so <laughs> it was so intriguing. It was like a train wreck. You just can't you can't look, look away. away. It was so <laughs> awkward and oh god. You know what? There are rumors that she's pregnant again. I know yeah. we shouldn't be all about the rumors, but I'm like, oh my god, is this the second coming? Well, it wouldn't be because he's already got his whole family. Like this whole thing is kind of established now. That's true. Now he's actually separated. He's a family man now. Two point (laughs) oh. He wrote a book to reinvent himself. Oh god. Okay, that's one. (laughs) What's your next one? Um, I think the next one is probably the one that you actually cited, which was about um David Linehelm and the comments he made towards Green Senator Sarah Hansen Young. So I want to package these two together in terms of the lowlights because um, before we started talking, um, recording this podcast, we were talking about it's not been a good year for feminism, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, and I'm talking about US politics as well. So mm-hmm. um, the two examples I point to is the one you just talked about. Mm-hmm. So Senator Hansen Young, um, David Linehelm, and also the Brett Kavanaugh. Um, American thing. Mm-hmm. So with Sarah Hansen Young, um, oh, I listened to, and I highly recommend people listen to um, Mia Freeman's No Filter podcast with Sarah Hansen Young. It's the most recent um, episode. And to be honest, I had checked out of this. Like I was so disgusted by everything that happened with this whole thing that I just, I did not tune in. But listening to Sarah Hansen Young talk about it, it made me so angry. It made my blood boil because essentially she said, um, she wanted, I think it was in um, the aftermath of Eurydice Dixon's death mm-hmm. and other violence against women type things. She wanted to introduce some legislation about um, eliminating violence against women, you know, relatively non-contentious. I thought we were all on the side of that. And then as she was talking about it, David Lionhelm um, said to her that, well, Sarah, you're going to have to stop shagging men. She then said she mm. was like, what? Because, like, there were a few seats, like, five seats apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And she said she went over there. And then she confronted him and was like, what did you just say to me? And he was like, what? And then she was like, what did you just say to me? And he was like, what do you think I said to you? Oh, my God. What a coward. And then so descended into this thing that now is the subject of a defamation suit because he then later, he refused to apologise. And she said on Mayor Friedman's podcast that um, the internal party people had tried to get, like, an apology. He refused to. And then he went on radio and, and further elaborated on this stuff, and now it's the subject of a defamation suit. Wow. So that was that. <laughs> um, in addition to that, a couple of weeks later, The Spectator um, – which is a very right-wing sort of online publication, made comments about her credibility gap. And in that picture, the accompanying picture was of her wearing a Leona Edmiston dress which had the decolletage cut out. 
So it's not the breast, it's right. just the decolletage like up here on your chest. Mm-hmm. And the like what they were trying to say was that she's a slut. Oh my god. Like that was the insinuation that that paper was trying to say, like the credibility gap, like, you know, that she yeah. Wait, so because she was wearing a seemingly skimpy dress, yeah. she wasn't to be taken seriously yeah. when making mm. allegations of misogynistic behaviour. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know where to go with any of that. So second, mind-boggling. Second to that <laughs> is the Brett Kavanaugh. Um, our most, well, not our, actually. The U- US. Most recent US Supreme, Supreme Court justice. I'm just so depressed because I was depressed before Brett Kavanaugh got like, you know, when, when, when he was first announced, because we saw um, the notorious RBJ mm-hmm. and we knew about the composition of the Supreme Court in America and the fact that it's very heavily leaning conservative. And Brett Kavanaugh is a very conservative person. He's been a county court judge for many, many, well, not county court, whatever it is. Um, the, I think the appeal circuit, they call it there. Like he's a high up yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. And he's had some very conservative judgments now he's in a position where we've got Roe v. Wade, which is already precarious looking, and mm-hmm. all we kind of need is a test case to push it over the edge mm-hmm. to um, fundamentally change abortion rights in America. And now we've got him. So already, off the bat, not excellent. But then um, we had the, the Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testimony. So she was the one that alleged that during her time at college or high school? Uh, no, it was at college. They were at a frat party during college mm. and they both happened to be at the same party. And I think the allegation, because I watched the testimony in its entirety, it's oh. really riveting to watch. A lot of people said they were crying yeah. on the subway I watching was, it. I was on the verge of tears watching it because here she was talking about something that was so incredibly traumatic to the entire world and yeah essentially the allegation consisted of her being dragged into a room by Brett Kavanaugh and another friend and him climbing over the top of her and just trying to push her down on the bed and at one stage put his mouth over her to stop her from screaming and she said I felt so lucky at the time because I just happened to be wearing a swimsuit under my clothes Mm. I just hate to think what would have happened had it been easier for him to get rid of all my clothes um so yeah it was incredibly riveting and incredibly disturbing to watch um and it was a beautifully eloquent testimony it was for someone who's been through so much and um like you said confronting the world like millions Mm. of people tuned into this testimony that wasn't going to necessarily and it didn't in the end stop him from being um, you know, sworn in, yeah. Um, and I think what was really shocking to me and just so depressing was contrasting her beautiful, eloquent testimony with his belligerent, you know, rage-induced response. <laughs> he was like an entitled little brat. Um, he's supposed to be at the next Supreme Court judge. I can't imagine any of our Supreme Court judges acting in this way. But he, oh, we've we've had some oh, have you? judges slash magistrates oh, in magi- particular. No, but I'm thinking like but yeah, the highest court, high of the court land. like a high court judge. Like, mm. Can you imagine any of our high court judges? They, I would never want to see that side of them. I'm so glad that our system works differently because mm. I don't want to see that. Um, I'd lose all respect. I think if I had to front Brett Kavanaugh, I'd be like. Like, that judicial respect is absolutely out the window because he just acted so poorly in this testimony and without any humility, without any repentance, um, without anything. And it was just such a stark um, comparison between the two and a really depressing way to see how this all eventuated and really reminded, I think a lot of people were reminded of the Anita Hill testimony Mm. that was in similar circumstances back in the early 90s. I think the hope was too that this testimony coming after the um, beginning of the Me Too movement might actually invite a different response to that which Anita Hill got. Um, so yeah, all the more dispiriting because I think the hopes were higher in terms of the outcome that could have been achieved. It's so unfortunate. Like, yeah. And you know, they are life appointments 
Uh, up in the States. Yeah, I forget in the States. And I can't remember how old he is exactly, but he's definitely on the younger side of appointments. He is young, yeah. And to think that he's going to be on that bench for years deciding the law Great of the cases. land. Oh, it's, yeah, it's yes, horrible. And yeah. like you said, Roe v. Wade, it's such a sort of in a tenuous place at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, yes, you've got that right to an abortion enshrined um, at a constitutional level, but there have already been so many restrictions that have gotten through to actually make it practically really difficult to get one. It seems almost impossible to get abortions in many US states. Mm. And it's cost prohibitive and this is just going to make it so much worse if there is a Supreme Court judgment that is in the favour of the pro-lifers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think that was probably those two. Just politics this year has been a massive blow, I think, um, from a feminist perspective and from a women's rights and reproductive rights perspective. Like, I just despair in terms of that. Um, Shall we move on to something happier? Yeah, let's talk about the highlights because this was – I actually found this quite hard to find a highlight. Yeah, we eventually got there after getting a recommendation from a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. Um, so I think it happened earlier this month where we had thousands of school students um, across uh, the country – including sort of like your big metropolitan cities as well as your regional centres, um, coming together to protest government inaction on climate change. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a little bit of research before coming here and I didn't realise that the actual inspiration for the day of protesting came from this um, 15-year-old um, Swedish girl. I think you pronounce her name as Greta Thunberg. Mm. And so she um, has made a pledge to miss every Friday of school. Oh, my God. To sit in front of the parliament in Stockholm, Sweden, mm. until they actually commit to abiding by the standards in the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Um, so the reason why this is the highlight is because <laughs> it was just so incredible to see sort of the next generation mm. of leaders actually engaging so... Um, intelligently and in such a sophisticated way with, a, you know, probably the most significant issue of mm. our lifetime and definitely theirs. I think that's not un- – I like, that has actually reminded me that this year is kind of the year of youth. Mm. Like, was the Parkland shooting this year? I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So we – which is horrible, um, but mm. there was some amazing activism that came out of that. Oh, my gosh, I was listening to um, – What's her name? Emma Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. I was listening to her speech um, again. Wow. Like, oh, my God. Her speech is amazing. It was just, oh, my God. Everyone, YouTube it, listen to it. It was one of the most amazing speeches. And I felt a lot of um, optimism that it would mm-hmm. change things in the gun law space for America, unfortunately. It's in this era of fake news. It only has had a lot of people say, oh, you hired the Parkland survivors to, as a pro, like, democratic thing, blah, blah, blah. And similarly with these protests in Australia, you had senior members of the government. Um, I think Matt Canavan at one stage said that um, the only thing protesting was good for was for getting in the line for dole budging in yeah. the future. And that I was think, a tenuous line to the yeah, at best. Yeah. And the then even our Prime Minister. Prime Minister of the moment, Scott Morrison, um, said that, you know, students need to be more focused on learning and not activism, mm. as if they're two discrete concepts. And if anything, the fact that they're engaging activism demonstrates that they have learnt something from school and that is critical thought like we can't just accept everything our shit government gives us Mm -hmm. and this is what the kids were protesting against because there has not been a lot of action in that space Mm -hmm. and ultimately it's them that are going to have to wear the consequences of it and their children and so um and from a personal perspective um I grew up going to protests from a really young age mm -hmm. um my dad was a teacher back in the day and was pretty heavily active in the teachers union And um, attending those protests was some of the best learning experiences for me in terms of understanding what the issues were when it came to education in the country. So 
um, activism, in my view, is definitely one of the best forms of learning. They're so out of touch with people. Like, that's not a good way of engaging with your next lot of voters, you realise. Well, governments tend to be really short-sighted. So yeah. these students won't be voting for a couple of years Some yet. will be, though. Some of the year 12. Some, but again, I don't think governments view it in that way. I think, mm, this is not a vote I need to get. I'm not going to invest in it. All right, you reap what you sow yeah. in the next election, which is I immediately so. next year. <laughs> um, I think I've only got one highlight that mm. I can think of, and it was pretty minor compared to yours. Um, so we finally, they finally got rid of the tampon tax. Hey, is- that is not minor. Mm. Like, that is something that has been on the to-do list for years and something that, you know, costs girls and women in terms of, being able to attend school or attend their place of employment. I've never understood why condoms are not deemed a luxury item, (laughs) but sanitary products are. Like, someone explain that to me. Yeah, I think that goes back to your whole argument about, you know, the merit system not being a thing. You end up having all these privileged, predominantly male white politicians who have never experienced a period um dictating i wish they could experience oh god oh even just like the average period yeah like you know don't even have like obviously there are all these health conditions give them yeah exactly give them proper cramps man like suffer from the extreme period pain i had once upon a time and still do from time to time Mm. then don't tax tampons and pads and things then you'll have more credibility do they want us to just bleed on the street (laughs) Is that what they want? Like, do they want? I think almost tempted to do that. I feel like that would be a real political protest. Oh, it would be. All women, when it's your time of the month, just walk down the street without a care in the world. Yeah, and you just just wash them squirm as you leave a trail of blood. And you know, you can get some some pretty gnarly illnesses from that. Like, would you like a side of hepatitis B? All right, so let's go on to our recommendations of 2018. Okay. And this year's been quite a bumpy year, I think. Yeah. We've read a lot. Did you want to go first? Mm, how about you go first? Okay. Well, when it comes to books, I actually haven't read a whole lot this year. I feel so like you have. I was actually looking at my bookcase earlier today, I think I told you, and I noted that I'd read most of the books in my bookshelf, but I feel like I haven't really read a whole lot of them recently. Mm. So um, of the small selection of books I have devoured this year, I would probably identify Clementine Ford's Boys Will Be Boys as my yeah. favourite yeah. Um, book. And we've spoken about it at mm. length in a previous podcast episode, so I won't rehash all the content. Um, but more or less, it's sort of like this really unafraid and really sort of powerful call to action for um, re-examining what exactly it means to be a man in today's society and in particular um, how detrimental um, toxic masculinity is um, just in all facets of life. Um, So, yeah, that would definitely be my highlight. What about you? Oh, I was just going to say off the back of that, if Mm. you – Clementine Ford doesn't really do many, like, um, podcasts and stuff like that. Like, And she's got her own podcast, but she hasn't recorded in a few years. But um, I can can I just recommend um, on the Rag podcast? It's a New Zealand podcast. You know how I was saying that I was going through my woman mm-hmm. like only listening to like women led media mm-hmm. phase on um, podcasts. They've actually got two interviews with Clementine Ford, mm-hmm. and um, she's really really excellent on that. And um, just hearing about her experience and the trolling and that type of mm. thing and how she deals with that and also the experience of motherhood mm-hmm. and that type of thing and raising a son, mm-hmm. I think, um, is super-duper interesting. So um, I would highly recommend that. What's it called again? On the Rag. On the Rag. Okay. Very conveniently <laughs> named after <laughs> our other discussion. Um, I think my recommendation for this year is a bit lowbrow, but um, Crazy Rich Asians. And the reason for that, it's a really, like, in terms of a storyline, it's pretty, like, low, and I've actually got the book there. Um, it's, you know, romantic, blah, blah, predictable, blah, blah. But in terms of Asian representation, it's nothing we've seen before since I think 1995 was the last time that we had, like, an all-Asian cast. And um, I think it's a great move. It's one of the best, like, box office-selling movies did you enjoy both the book and the film? I read the book years ago, so I'm actually rereading it now. But I enjoyed the movie because it was, like, you know, it wasn't 
a highbrow intellectual type movie, mm-hmm. but it was just so refreshing seeing people that look like mm-hmm. you on screen. And I think that's something that we don't get a lot of in Australia because a lot of Australian made content is predominantly Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian mm-hmm. people. Um, and, you know, I recently read Alice Pung's book about, um, it's called, it's a, like an anthology of lots of essays and stuff. It's called Close to Home. And she talks a lot about that experience of not seeing your face. Mm. Um, I think Ben Law has talked about it a lot as well. And a lot of prominent Asian Australians um, have pointed out that we have a huge diversity problem in Australia. So I think it's quite refreshing to see that we, you know, there is a cast full of um, Asian representation and that it can actually be profitable too. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that um, a lot of short-sighted producers in Hollywood and perhaps not seeing is that there's a huge Chinese market. Mm -hmm. Like if you market well, you could capture that entire market that's like got lots of money and is only going to benefit you. And like by casting people who um, more accurately represent, you know, other people, it's a good way of going about that. Yeah. And then finally, my book recommendation would for this year would be Eggshell Skull. Yes. We both devoured that book as well. Yeah. We and went the, to the book launch with Clementine Ford, who was hosting. Oh <laughs> so good. Yeah. Breely is an amazing writer. She's an amazing speaker mm. and um, an amazing advocate. Mm. Because And um, it's her first book. Like I, I keep having to stop myself and realise that because, yeah, it was one of, like, the best written books I've read this year. Yeah, absolutely. And for someone so young to be able to write something that's so beautiful, beautiful is, yeah, a testament to kind of, you know, what we have to look forward to. Absolutely. And I think it's almost kind of like it's a memoir as well, so it's kind mm. of like that writing, I'm not sure. I read a lot of her articles and stuff like that, but she, um, unless some other big life experience happens, we're unlikely to see it in such a big form. Mm. But she's leading a lot of um, law reform change in, in Queensland now in terms of like complainants rights in sexual offence cases Mm -hmm. and that type of thing that's been led from her experience in the courts experiences I don't think she practiced but she was a judge's associate um and that extensive experiencing like the most heinous of sex crimes Mm -hmm. um whilst also wrestling with her own trauma of being a sexual abuse survivor absolutely so I I can't recommend that more like I, I love her writing she's a fabulous Australian author um who's like our age mm. and leading so much change like absolutely just yeah mm. um I guess the last recommendation I would want to make is for a podcast mm. um so I've only recently started listening to it um but it's called Unfuck Your Brain yes <laughs> and um it's about this former lawyer turned academic turned life coach um, who essentially targets this podcast towards like high achieving women who um, are sort of struggling with the issues that come about when you're sort of operating in a work environment that's still very much structured towards um, supporting men over women. So what is she? She's a life coach, right? Yeah, she is. So, um, for example, one of the episodes that resonated really strongly with me was one about imposter syndrome. And um, what she does is, you know, she'll define what the problem is, um, explain what she perceives to be the causes for it, and then actually give some practical advice in terms of what you can do to tackle it. Mm. So with the imposter syndrome, um, she came up with this concept of, and I don't think it's original to her, but it was the first time I'd heard of it, um, of a thought ladder. I haven't thought of that. I haven't heard of that. So she was basically saying... um, you know, there's a three-step process in terms of addressing imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, So first thing you do is you acknowledge what you believe about yourself. So whether that's I don't feel like I'm good enough for this job or I'm not smart enough or I don't work hard enough, whatever it is, Mm. um, acknowledge that thought. Then identify the thought that you want to have. So, um, you know, I feel that I'm the best person for this task Mm. or I'm a fearless advocate, whatever it is. Yeah. And then the third step is finding a thought that's kind of in between the thought that you currently have and Mm. the thought that you aspire to have. And the reason she says to do that is because it's usually too big of a leap to go from someone that doubts everything about themselves to then 
actually acting like a seemingly mediocre white man and believing that, you know, you're top shit. That's a really realistic yeah. um, way of doing that. Yeah, like it's that. like, it's very common sense, like, and she's like, just write it down and just when you can, practice it like a mantra. So, for example, um, okay, you don't think you're the smartest person in the room mm. um, and you want to be the smartest person in the room. Well, the middle thought could be, um, I achieved a really good outcome in court today. Yeah. And maybe that means that I'm smart, at least with respect to whatever that case was about. Mm. So kind of subtly shifting that thought pattern until you're comfortable with that thought and then improving it by sort of mm. adding a Yeah. So I just really liked her podcast because, yeah, very relatable. I think Taipei personality, yeah. like ourselves, often are very quick to um, be self-critical. And I'm really trying to practice getting into that mindset of being like, well, actually, I am pretty accomplished. And not just knowing it rationally to be the case, but actually, yeah, feeling it as well. I think it's really good that it's, um, like, marketed itself as a bit of a feminist. It didn't used to be like that. No. So she actually rebranded the podcast entirely. Initially, it was called Lawyer Stress Solution, and it was all about Mm. sort of helping lawyers with their mental health issues. Yeah. Um, Probably everyone just shut down. Well, I mean, it's a pretty specific market if you're just, you know, talking to lawyers, whereas this podcast is specifically targeted to women Mm. um and I think a lot of her examples are ones that are very relatable to high achieving women well certainly the imposter syndrome that you're talking about like that would be really useful for so many women I think we've all suffered that at some point I actually took your this recommendation on board when you were talking a lot about it and I um listened to one called dealing with difficult clients oh yeah which is a really good one Mm -hmm. but um one key takeaway that she said was that if you reframe it as in you, it's about expectation management. Mm-hmm. So if you say that you ask yourself, um, would I still take this job knowing that I would be dealing with like a belligerent partner mm-hmm. or a difficult client? And if the answer is yes, like, you know, in terms of if it was already on the PD when you walked in, mm-hmm. then reframe it in that sense and mm-hmm. to just say, well, this is part of my job. It was in the PD. Yeah. And I think because most people don't go into jobs expecting to cop a, a certain amount of hostility or difficultness. And obviously there's a line between, you know, abuse, abuse and, and difficult. Difficult, difficult mm. everyone will have to deal with as a part of their lives. I mean, you talk mm. about magistrates and judges who have particular personalities and you have to work within that framework. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come in thinking that that is what your job is, then it's mm. not that big a dish, an issue. It's an expectation. You've already yeah. expected it and you're just managing it as if, yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes, especially in areas like law, people are just so desperate to get their foot into the job market that they don't actually consciously turn their minds to what they want out of a job and what they expect out of a job. Mm, absolutely. But I think that's a good way to sort of think about yeah. that. Um, but yeah, I think... That's it for yeah. this year. Um, as we wrap up 2018, um, join us for next year as we have some more thoughts. Happier and healthier 2019. Yes. That's what He's I want. He's hoping to happier. <laughs> Personally, and professionally and politically. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's a very optimistic note to leave <laughs> off on. Um, happy New Year, everyone, and I hope you've had a safe and happy Christmas and holiday break period. 